FM 104.6. Radio Borders Youth Association. Good afternoon, everybody. You are listening to the sound of Universal Compassion. Today is 27th of November. We will continue listening to Tenton Tosin's previous program with the book Way of Life by Shanti Davies. And please enjoy. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Tashidele, as the Tibetans say. It roughly means blessings and good fortune, if you didn't know already. And welcome to the program. We're focusing on bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to gain enlightenment to be of the greatest benefit to all beings, especially as described by the Indian master Shantideva in his text A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Those of you who were with us last time will remember how we spoke about the great difficulty but also the great benefit of developing bodhicitta. I mean, we can't even develop a mind that sees all beings as equal never mind the mind that has overriding compassion for all beings. Just bring to mind a person that you don't get on with. Do you have the same feeling for them as you have for your best friend? It's pretty hard, isn't it? Sometimes when people hear about bodhicitta, they get all inspired and go around saying that their practice is bodhicitta and their actions are motivated by the wish to become enlightened to help all beings. However, it's extremely difficult to overcome the self-grasping and self-cherishing minds that we're addicted to, so their words may be a little optimistic. Shantideva says that the power of our selfishness is so strong that the awakening mind or bodhicitta only appears very occasionally, like the flash of lightning in a stormy night sky. Seeing it as so rare and so precious, he urges us to cultivate it as much as we can, although it might seem very intimidating to swap our concern for ourselves for a concern for others. What will happen to me, we wonder? How can I exist if I'm always thinking of others? The answer is that we exist much more easily and smoothly if we have bodhicitta than if we don't. We ordinary people are continually beset by problems, which we try to escape by chasing pleasure and avoiding pain. But if we look at the results of doing that, it's easy to see that it hasn't worked for anybody yet, and from a Buddhist point of view, it will never work. Chasing pleasure and avoiding pain because of our self-cherishing attitude will always only lead us further into trouble and misery. The antidote to this closed-mindedness, this cocoon attitude of me first, me, 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 is bodhicitta, the mind driven by great compassion for all suffering beings, and the wish to free them from suffering forever. That is the primary distinction with bodhicitta. The mind is not focused inwards on oneself and all one's own petty stories and mistaken attitudes, but on all beings and their long-term happiness. 
And because this mind is so vast and open, it helps to free us from our self-absorption and puts our difficulties into perspective. When you consider the suffering of all beings, your suffering seems insignificant and, in fact, becomes insignificant in the larger scale of things. I have heard in teachings that it is of little consequence for a high bodhisattva to give away a part of their body, and any wound heals extremely quickly. But perhaps the best result of cultivating bodhicitta is described in the verse of Shantideva's text we have reached, verse 10 of the first chapter. It reads, It is like the supreme gold-making elixir, for it transforms the unclean body we have taken into the priceless jewel of a Buddha form, therefore firmly seize this awakening mind. Now before we go any further in considering the text, let's first set our motivation as usual. And as our discussion is on bodhicitta, let's take a moment to make that our motivation. Let's participate in this program for the purpose of attaining enlightenment so that we can be of best benefit not only to ourselves but to all other beings as well. Thank you. Now in verse 10, Shantideva compares bodhicitta to the alchemist's elixir that transforms a base substance into a very precious substance like gold. We've taken an unclean body because it's the result of afflictive emotion and karma and so is subject to continual suffering and psychic existence. But with bodhicitta and wisdom, this polluted body and mind can be turned into the pure bodies and mind of a Buddha, His Holiness the Dalai Lama also talks in terms of the subtle mind and energy. He says we normally designate a self on the basis of a polluted body and mind, but the ultimate designation of the self is on the very subtle form of mind and energy, polluted for the time being, which results in a polluted self. When the subtle mind and energy are purified, the ultimate state, the Dharmakaya, is reached and then the self designated on that purified mind and energy will be the Buddha. In any case, it is in dependence on this mind of bodhicitta that the unclean mind we are saddled with in samsara will be transformed into the Buddha. That is the value of bodhicitta in this verse. The tools of transformation are our body, speech and mind. So Shantideva uses the analogy of an alchemist in verse 10 and then goes on in the next four verses to describe the value of bodhicitta according to four more analogies. In verse 11, he makes a kind of follow-the-leader analogy. Since the limitless mind of the sole guide of the world has upon thorough investigation seen its preciousness, all beings wishing to be free from worldly abodes should firmly take hold of this precious awakening mind. Now the sole guide of the world is of course the Buddha, and the worldly abodes are the various realms of cyclic existence. So in this verse he's saying that the Buddha, with his unlimited mind, has contemplated extensively on the value of bodhicitta and realized how very precious it is. So if we want to be free from our endless nomadic wandering from one uncomfortable situation in samsara to another, we should definitely cultivate the intention to attain enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Shantideva, of course, implies that the Buddha, realizing how important bodhicitta is in attaining Buddhahood, taught it to those of his followers who would gain the most benefit from it. 
also implied is that because we have come into contact with these teachings, we should also seriously consider the benefits of developing within ourselves this altruistic intention. In the next analogy, Shantideva uses a plantain tree, a kind of banana tree that doesn't actually have a trunk. What we would see as a trunk is actually made up of a number of tightly wound leaves that once the tree is flowered and given its fruit, die to be replaced by other leaves. Shantideva says that once it has borne fruit, this tree simply dies, and any virtue we do without bodhicitta motivation is the same. Once the virtue has borne fruit, according to our motivation, it will have nothing more to offer. However, because the bodhicitta motivation is for enlightenment for all beings, it will last until that occurs. In other words, it will not be exhausted until samsara is exhausted for you. For instance, if you do a positive action, like say recite some sutras for the well-being of your relative, that relative and you will get some benefit that may even last until your relative dies. But when according to your motivation the energy of that virtue is finished, your positive deed will no longer have the power to help either you or your relative. However, if your deed had been motivated by bodhicitta, the positive effect will never be exhausted, even if you had also dedicated the merit to your relative. The verse reads like this, All other virtues are like the plantain tree, for after bearing fruit they simply perish. But the perennial tree of the awakening mind unceasingly bears fruit and thereby flourishes without end. Then the next verse uses the analogy of passing through danger with a very brave and skilled guide by your side. In such a situation, you don't have to be fearful. It reads, Like entrusting myself to a brave man when greatly afraid, by entrusting myself to this awakening mind, I shall be swiftly liberated, even if I have committed extremely unbearable evils. Why then do the conscientious not devote themselves to this? He's saying that even though we may have created many powerful negativities in the past, by generating bodhicitta, we will quickly be liberated and so not have to experience their effects. Notice the use of the word conscientious here, for bodhicitta is not easy to generate. We can't merely say, oh, my practice is bodhicitta and expect all our problems to be solved. The power of bodhicitta comes from the realization on our mind after long practice, and so we have to be diligent. Pema Chodron says the power of bodhicitta here comes from opening the mind when our negative karmic seeds ripen into difficult situations, developing a compassion, realizing through our suffering the infinite suffering of others. A more usual attitude may be to retreat into a poor me, complaining or blaming attitude, and this makes things much worse. By relying on bodhicitta, we may still have to experience difficult situations, but our suffering will be much less, and eventually, like the Buddha, we will not have any problems in such situations. Just like the fire at the end of an age, it instantly consumes all great evil. Its unfathomable advantages were taught to the disciple Sudana by the wise Lord Maitreya. Pema Chodron has an arresting exp explanation of this verse. On the face of it, the verse compares Bodhicitta's purifying action on our negative karma to the fire that consumes everything at the end of a universe. 
and mentions the Gandavriya Sutra, which is part of the flower-adorned or Avatamsaka Sutra. In this sutra, an Indian youth, Sudhana, intent on becoming enlightened, takes teachings from 53 masters, including the future Buddha Maitreya, who extols the benefits of bodhicitta with 230 examples. Taking a slightly different tack, Pema Chodron says that by buying into our negativities and acting them out or turning them against ourselves, we make them stronger. By opening out to them and staying steady with the emotional fire of the experience, willing to explore the ungraspable qualities and fluid energies, our minds remain open enough to link to the pain and courage of others. This helps to destroy the hold negativities have on us. It is, of course, easy to say, but much harder to do. The energy of strong emotion or instinct can be very compelling and has the power to almost force us to act. So we have to be constantly mindful and ready to counter our compulsions or at least modify them so that they cause less harm. A powerful concern for the well-being of others is a major ally in this exercise. Then in the next two verses, Shantideva describes two kinds of bodhicitta. When we first hear about the wish to gain enlightenment to lead other beings to Buddhahood, it may seem a truly admirable and remarkable intention, but really impossible to contemplate. I mean the range of various dispositions and states of existence of beings, from implacably aggressive to shrinkingly timid, from completely hedonistic to agonized, is inexpressibly huge. And we can hardly take responsibility for the people in our own family, never mind all the beings throughout space and time. In fact, most of us find it difficult enough to take full responsibility for ourselves. How then can we even consider all sentient beings? It's far, far too much. At that stage, we may say, this bodhicitta is great, but it's not for me. I can only be content with getting my own enlightenment. Or we could go a step further and think that although I'm not in a position to take on this vast responsibility right now, because it is so very beneficial, I hope and pray that I will be able to in the future when my mind is stronger and more accustomed to the thought. This intention to take on the full responsibility to benefit all beings in the future is the first kind of bodhicitta. It is commonly called aspiring bodhicitta. Then when we have taken more teachings, thought deeply about the sufferings of all beings and have developed a very strong compassion for them, we will come to a point at which we realize we now have to take on the responsibility to free them. In the same way that a mother would want to free her only child from torture, at that point, usually in a ceremony, we take the Bodhisattva vow, which in Tibetan Buddhism is a commitment with 18 main precepts and 42 secondary precepts. And we start to practice the deeds of a Bodhisattva, basically the six perfections, generosity, morality, patience, enthusiasm, concentration, and wisdom. And this is engaged bodhicitta. So these two types of bodhicitta are what Shantideva refers to when he says, In brief, the awakening mind should be understood to be of two types, the mind that aspires to awaken and the mind that ventures to do so, as is understood by the distinction between aspiring to go and actually going. So the wise understand in turn the distinction between these two. 
He compares the two to a person's intentions to travel. Let's say you read about Thailand and think how wonderful it would be to take a holiday there. You think to yourself that you will definitely go sometime in the future when you have the time and money. This is like aspiring bodhicitta, which has a strong intention to develop bodhicitta but has no immediate, immediate plans to do so. Then, say a few months later, you realize you have enough money in the bank and holidays saved up, so you apply for leave, buy the tickets, arrange accommodation and make all the other preparations. Finally, you board the plane and wing off into the wide blue yonder. This is like engaged bodhicitta. As you can see, there's a great difference between thinking, I would like to visit Thailand on holiday and actually getting on the plane and going. Pema Chodron uses a more subtle example, but one that applies more to our everyday life. She talks about being stuck in the mind of miserliness, essentially grasping at objects and not wanting to let go. You know this is a cramped, harmful mind, but you find it very difficult to practice generosity with your possessions. Pema Chodron says, first visualize giving them away. At this stage, we don't actually have to give anything, but we use our imagination. Then, once a little familiar with that, we imagine those possessions multiplying enormously, and we give them all to the needy, or just out to the universe for anybody that can use them. This, Pema Children says, brings two benefits. It helps us to weaken the discomfort of self-absorption, and it helps us to be of benefit to others. Also, if we not only imagine them making good use of our gifts, but we also imagine giving them a clear, unpolluted mind, the intention becomes even more expansive. If we practice like this, using all our possessions and even our bodies, in due course we will find ourselves able to give away anything without the least qualm or hanging on. The benefits of practicing like this, says Shantideva, are very great. Though he also points out that once we have an actual bodhicitta on our mind stream, the benefits are much greater than those brought forth by aspiring bodhicitta. As he says, Although great fruits occur in cyclic existence from the mind that aspires to, wake, to awaken, an uninterrupted flow of merit does not ensue as it does with a venturing mind. And for him who has perfectly seized this mind, with the thought never to turn away from totally liberating the infinite forms of life, from that time hence, even while asleep or unconcerned, a force of merit equal to the sky will perpetually ensue. For the sake of those inclined towards the lesser vehicle, this was logically asserted by the Tathagata himself in the sutra requested by Subahu. Pema Chodron explains these verses very nicely. This is what she says. At the level of intention, we begin with what's manageable and let our understanding evolve. By the time we're able to act on our intention, we've realized something profound. We've understood that selfless action liberates us from fear and sorrow. In verses 18 and 19, Shantideva explains that our intention to free all beings from suffering can become irreversible, bringing benefit equal to the vastness of the sky. This happens when we no longer question the wisdom of thinking of others. We truly know this to be the source of indestructible happiness. Something shifts at the core of our being, and when it does, we experience a ceaseless flow of benefit, even during sleep and inattention. 
This is the happiness of egolessness. It's the joy of realizing there is no prison. There are only strong habits and no sane reason for strengthening them any further. In essence, these habits are insubstantial. Moreover, there's no solid self-identity or separateness. We've invented it at all. It is this realization that we want for the endless multitude of beings. Now, in the sutra requested by Subaru, the Buddha explains the benefits of developing this bodhicitta mind. Ringu Toku Rinpoche gives such a marvelous teaching on this verse that I'm going to read it to you. It really explains what these verses mean. Please bear in mind that English is not Rinpoche's first language, so the talk might sound a little stilted, but if you understand the sense, I think you may well be inspired. First, he talks about the word Tathagata, which means one thus gone, and refers, of course, to the Buddha. He says, If you see things clearly, and if you find the truth, then you become Tathagata. So this Tathagata, the Buddha used to call himself Tathagata, so the Tathagata said this in the sutra called Request by Subahu. There was a bodhisattva called Subahu, and there is a sutra answering the questions of Subahu. The Buddha explained there how special bodhicitta is, how important it is, how different it is from other positive actions and positive thoughts. And there the Buddha gave four reasons, four limitlessnesses, because the person who has bodhicitta wishes all beings to be free from suffering, and this is extended to limitless beings, not just our near and dear ones, not just for the people of one country, not just for the people of one world, not just human beings, all beings, wherever they are throughout space, in whatever form, whatever kind of different existence they may be in, the compassion is extended to all of them. So that's the first limitlessness. And then the second is that they want or wish to be free from every type of suffering and pain and problems. It's not just that they have enough to eat or just that they have no disease or no particular strong suffering and pain. It's not just like that. But every type, every kind of suffering or pain or dissatisfaction, they want to be free from all of those. So this is the other limitlessness, the second limitlessness. And the third is that it's not just to wish that people should be free from pain and then that's only that much. It's not like that. Bodhicitta, or the Bodhisattva's wish, or even those who have a strong kind of aspirational Bodhicitta, wish that these beings, all these countless beings, not just be free from all kinds of sufferings, but they have the highest, the best, the most ultimate happiness. Whether that is called enlightenment or not is another matter. But what you wish them is the best. It's not that I wish myself to be really happy and really joyful and really the best and then others a little bit below that, a little bit okay but not too much. It's not like that. The wish is for limitless happiness, limitless well-being, limitless wisdom, compassion, freedom, everything, the best, enlightened. So that's the third limitlessness. Now, it's not just the wish is that these beings be free from suffering and have the highest kind of happiness or joy or well-being for a short time. It's not like that. That's not the wish. The wish is that they be in that state of lasting peace and well-being and highest kind of happiness for all time. So it's limitless, for limitless time, 
for the limitless beings, free from any kind of suffering, that they have the limitless happiness, the highest, the best, for a limitless time. So therefore, there's nothing better you can wish for. There's no grander benefit you can wish for. So therefore, this bodhicitta is something extraordinary. It's an extraordinary wish. It's an extraordinarily benevolent wish. It's an extraordinarily good wish. The best wish. So therefore, it is something that is extremely powerful, extremely positive, unlimited kind of positiveness. That's why it's said that this is not just for those inclined to the lesser path. The lesser path means only wishing good things for myself and just doing positive things only because I wish to be happier. I wish to be happy. That's the lesser path. Or I wish me and some of my people to be happier. That's a little bit lesser. It's not bad. It's very good, but much lesser than this kind of thing. So therefore, it's not only bringing those kind of small-minded people to a more grander kind of way of using this compassionate way of looking. Not only that. It's for that, but it's not only that. If you look at this limitless kind of compassion, there's a reason to understand that this kind of motivation is the most limitless and the most beneficial and benevolent. There can't be anything better than this. It's not possible for there to be any wish or any motivation, any intention that could be more positive or more limitless than this. So that's why Buddha said that bodhicitta is the limitless kind of positiveness. So therefore, usually this kind of what is more positive or what is less positive is something that is not easy to say. It's difficult. But here we can, we can understand, we can imagine so therefore, it is possible to kind of reason it out also. So therefore, based on this, you can also reason how important, how positive this aspiration is. And when the aspiration itself is so positive and so powerful, then the action, the actual implementation to start to work on that kind of great unthinkable kind of project, how positive, how powerful that may be, we can imagine and we can understand. That's Ringu Tokurumshe. So if we really want true, lasting, overwhelming happiness, at least our intention must be aspirational bodhicitta. The object of our intention is the limitless beings who are in a state of confusion and suffering, just like ourselves. Of course, normally we think that we will find happiness if we work only for our own well-being, even if that means harming others. But here, we're told exactly the opposite. We will only find real happiness if we focus on benefiting others, even if that means some detriment to ourselves. The reason for this is that when we make our object the inconceivable number of dissatisfied and miserable beings, our usual small, enclosed, self-obsessed mind, the cause of so much of our suffering, opens out far beyond what, is use, what it is used to. The object of our intention is limitless, so the mind stretches limitlessly. We become expansive instead of insular, and the benefit from our intention also becomes limitless. And if we're then able to put that intention into action, the benefit increases immeasurably. Shantideva continues, If even the thought to relieve living creatures of merely a headache is a beneficial intention endowed with infinite goodness, then what need is there to mention the wish to dispel their inconceivable misery, wishing every single one of them to realize boundless good qualities? 
If the kind wish to relieve all others of just a headache has incalculable benefit, what, asks Shantideva, about the benefit that comes from wishing them all to be free of every single kind of suffering? Now you might say that this is a nonsensical argument because it's impossible to free all beings from their headaches, never mind from all their sufferings. But, as Pema Chodron points out, we're not focused on results here. We are interested in opening our hearts limitlessly to create the greatest benefit and happiness we can. This will be advantageous to everyone we come across, whether we can save the world or not. Really, it's the effect on, the effect on our minds and consequently on our actions that is at most stake here. Something to think about for the next week. For now we've run out of time and must go. Thank you for joining the program today. As we leave, let's dedicate any benefits from the program to this vast mind of bodhicitta, the wish to help everyone in whatever way possible, but especially to become enlightened. Have a wonderful week. Goodbye.